doing today? Colin is the only guy that we have do the intro and the close where he gets like an applause every time he does it. I love that guy. Welcome to Camarillo Community Church. We're so glad you're here. And uh, if you have children here, you're with Seven Seas. Man, we're so glad you're here. Merry Christmas to you. Uh, I like to say this every time we do this. We love your children. We love you. We want to be here for you, your family, your children especially. And uh, if you don't have a place to call your home church, then, then we claim you. And uh, you're ours. This is home for you. And we're so glad you are here. I hope the Christmas season isn't stressing you out yet. We just came out of Thanksgiving. And I need to go on a jog. And now we're headed towards full steam ahead towards the Christmas season and it's time for gifts and buying and do I go to the store? Do I go to the outlets? Don't do that. Do you know they had a stop sign at the outlets because it's so crazy? Two of them. That's crazy. Avoid that side of town. And Amazon baby comes to your house in two days. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, I do get some royalties for saying that. Um, that's a joke, and that's funny. Uh, so anyway, the Christmas season is about Jesus. The reason for the season is about Jesus. So uh, don't forget that along the way. We have a way that we're going to go as a church and remind ourselves of this. This month, at the end of our service today, you'll see a video where we're going to talk about giving a gift to Jesus. And so I'm excited about that this month. I think it's going to be awesome. We still want to do all the things. I'm a reindeer guy. I'm not one of those prudes who's like, no, you know, no reindeers for our kids. Your kids can still do reindeers. But let's just try to remember, too, that Jesus is the reason for the season as well. So that's coming up. Uh, if you're new to us, my name is David Hurtado. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad you are here. I've been with Camarillo Community Church for about two, uh, almost two years now. And uh, we're going through the book of Mark as our series. So what we do is we go chapter and verse and just keep on going through until we get to the end. We're now in chapter 12. You'll see that today. If you feel like you're kind of in the middle of a party, it's okay. We'll, we'll explain everything to you. But we are going through kind of the, the, the journey of Jesus' life through the eyes of Mark, uh, the book of Mark. And so that's what we'll be doing today. Um, I'm super excited. I want to start this way. Um, have you ever had that person in your life who approaches you maybe with a question and maybe they come to you and say, hey, how is your day today? But really their motivation behind that question is to hear less about you and hear more about them. It's like, okay, get through the 30 seconds of how your life is so I can tell you how my life is going. Because the real point of this story is me. <laughs> like, I, I'm the main feature of this film, uh, you know, type of thing. You ever been in that situation before? It's like, I ask a question, I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I really don't want to hear your thoughts on that. I really just want to tell you my thoughts on it, right? I'm the main feature. For instance, today, uh, I know who the main feature is today. It's those wonderful, beautiful, cute kids. I think I'm cute, not that cute. That's why we're bringing them back at the end so that you guys will all be happy with what we do. I'm not the main feature, they are. But anyway, you have those people in your life that sometimes will come to you and, and they'll ask you a question and really it's more about they wanna be able to tell you what they think about things. Uh, you know, people with an agenda. People approach you with an agenda. If you've been with us, um, you, know, you know, for a good season, you might remember the time when we talked about timeshare presentation people. Uh, do they have an agenda? Yeah, yeah, can you see it coming? Yeah, sometimes a mile away. Same kind of people would be like, used car salesman people, do they have an agenda? They'll ask you questions that, that, that you know, that, that, that seem kind of on the surface okay, like, don't you think you deserve a vacation? Well, yes, I do deserve a vacation. Don't you think you deserve a new used car? Don't you think you deserve a luxurious car? Don't you think you deserve a sporty car or a big, hefty, powerful truck? They ask, they use this word deserve as if it's a weapon against you. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and you, you have to kind of see past 
what they're saying to the agenda behind what they're saying. I remember when I did this to my mother when I was a kid. I was about 14, 15 years old, and I think the laws are still the same today. Uh, before you can get your driver's license at 16, you have to go through driver's training, and you have to go to driver's school. Is that still today? Yeah? Is this still happening today? Okay. And you have to pay to get this driver's training. And that's why we see little cars on the road that say, you know, kids and, you know, you know kids practicing or whatever. You honk at them, you flash your lights at them. Don't do that. But the, the point is, that's what you, do. you have to pay this extra fee so you can get your driver's training so you can take your driver's sex and get your license. I remember being a kid and going, Mom, I'm a really good kid. I really need you to pay for my driver's school so I can get my driver's license when I'm 16 years old. I'm, like, I'm a good kid. I remember telling her, you know, I didn't get in drugs. I'm not in gangs and, you know, type of thing. That was like her, her big thing. You know, you're a good kid if you don't get in the gangs and you don't do drugs. Look, Mom, I'm a good kid. I didn't get in the drugs. I'm not in the gangs. And so, you, you know, I deserve, there's that word again, I deserve to be able to get my driver's license. I deserve for you to buy me a car and pay my insurance and, and pay all my gas. And, and Mom, I deserve it. I'm a good kid. And I'll never forget her response. she go, oh, David, deserve. Oh, you're a wonderful kid, deserve. Oh, David, don't stop at a car. You deserve a limousine. <laughs> you, you, you deserve, you deserve a, your own airplane, David. Don't stop at a car. You deserve your own cruise liner. David Hurtado cruise liner. That's what you deserve. Needless to say, I didn't get my license until I was 18 years old. <laughs> but she was seeing right through all that and saying very clearly to me, David, I see right through your agenda. I see right through your agenda. And it's amazing how, how sometimes we can say, I hate when people approach me with an agenda. But if I'm 100% honest, there have been many times in my life where I approach other people with an agenda. I don't like it when they approach me with agenda, but many times have I approached people with an agenda. And what we're going to look at today is the fact that sometimes we approach God with an agenda. Like we approach God, the creator of the world, with our own agenda, we approach him. And we're going to ask the question, do you think he notices it? And if he does notice it, what does he do about it? Does the omniscient, that means all-knowing God, see the agenda? Mm, probably like a mile away. Kind of like us in timeshare salesmen, right? And if he does see it, how does he respond? You see, God has the ability to see past our actions that we do with our hands and see into our motivations that we have in our hearts. And when those motivations don't line up with his purposes, how will he respond? And that's what we're going to look at in our scriptures today. So I challenge you, open up your Bible right now to Mark chapter 12 is where we're at. If you have a phone, you have the U version, open it up, get there, take notes. One thing about our church, guys, we want to be students of the Word of God. I hope you came ready to learn. Like, I want to learn something today. I want to dive in the scriptures and learn something. And sometimes when we take notes, it helps us learn things. And so we're in uh, Mark chapter 12, and the question that you'll see on the screen, the overarching question today is, what happens when you try to corner Jesus to suit your own agenda? What happens when you try and corner Jesus to suit your own personal agenda? I have this agenda. I'm going to corner Jesus with my agenda. You're going to do what I want to do because this is my agenda is the idea. And number one, the first thing we're going to see is he will find your hidden agenda. He's God. Uh, he can see all things. He can be everywhere at one time. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He can see right through your agenda. He'll find that hidden agenda. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 18. I'll read. You follow along. You'll see it on the screens here. It says this. Then the Sadducees, 
who say there's no resurrection. We're going to stop right there. Just keep that filed in the back of your brain. That's going to come back. That's pretty pivotal to the whole story here, okay? Then the Sadducees, who say they don't believe in the resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow, marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. So if that's the case, let's say there's seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died leaving no child. And the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven brothers left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. And at the resurrection, which by the way, they don't believe in, right? At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since seven were married to her? What happens when you try to corner Jesus to suit your own agenda? He will find your hidden agenda. I want to give you just a quick little backdrop of where we are in the book of Mark. We've, we've been going through the book of Mark, which is Mark's vantage, from Mark's vantage point, Jesus' life and ministry. And so we're at the very tail end of it. We're now at the last week of Jesus' life. And you remember what we've seen in, the re, in recent weeks. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. They're chanting his name. This is our Messiah. He's here. Everybody's excited about it. He walks in the temple, doesn't like what he sees, Go home. goes home, takes a nap, comes back the next, way, next, the next day and throws the temples all up, throws everything out of the temple. Now, this is God's house. I don't like what you're doing in God's house. I'm going to throw over all the te- temples of the money changers. I'm going to throw all, all the tables where the, where the people who are selling um, uh, uh, goods for worship. It's almost like they are putting a covered charge before you come to church. So you, before you want, you want to worship God, there's a covered charge at the door. They, if you wanted to give money to God, you had to change the money into spiritual currency. And, of course, there's a tw- 10 to 20% markup on that. If you wanted to worship God, give a sacrifice, a dove or a lamb or a goat. We'll sell it to you, but there's a 10 to 20% markup on that too. And so the idea is a cover charge to go to church, and he gets so upset about that, he throws them all out. And all the religious folk are saying, why, how can you do that? By what authority do you have to do that? You can't do that. In fact, last week we saw the Herodians and the Pharisees got together. They're actually enemies, but they get together on one cause. We've got to defeat this Jesus guy. We don't like him. And Dan did a great job of showing how he gets through that situation. When they ask him a question, if he says this answer A or he says this answer B, we got him. Answer A, answer B, we got him. So that's a great question to ask him. And Jesus goes, oh, actually there's a C on that one, and I'm going to get out of that fine. And this is kind of the interaction that he's having with all these folks, these different groups. We don't like what you're doing, Jesus. We don't want to lose our esteem. We don't want to lose our fame. We don't want to lose our authority. We don't want to lose the influence that we have, so we're challenging you. And today we're on the latest group that challenges them. All right, Pharisees failed, Herodians failed, and the Sadducees, okay, our turn. And they come to Jesus, and they're going to try to challenge him as well. And so we ask, who who are the Sadducees? Let's learn a little bit about them. The Sadducees were the the priesthood for the upper class. So they were upper class themselves, which means they were wealthy, had money, and they were the priesthood for the upper class. We also know that they were in charge of the temple mount. So they were in charge of all the activities in the temple. So they were the ones who were selling all these uh, lucrative businesses of changing money and selling animals. And so that's there. So you can imagine now, think about that. Wait a second, he just turned over all of our tables. 
and we sold those businesses to those people. We're getting a cut of that. We're wealthy because of that. We better challenge him. So their motivation, obviously, is to say, we better figure this out. We're not going to go down without a fight. This is very profitable for us. Theologically, they had very, very interesting views. Uh, a very, very di- In fact, Josephus actually goes out of his way to mention some of these views. Now, Josephus was not a Christ-following Christian. He wasn't a believer in Christ. He certainly uh, could empathize with Christ and wrote some beautiful things about Christ, but he wasn't an actual follower. Uh, you know, and one of the things he said about the Sadducees was they did not believe in the afterlife and they did not believe in the resurrection. So you have this group of people that are religious folk that don't believe that there's life after life on earth. They don't believe in a resurrection to, life after, to the afterlife. They don't believe in the afterlife. They don't even believe in angels. They, they, we, don't, we, don't believe, we believe when you die on earth, you're just done. It would be akin to modern day annihilationists. They were annihilationists. Uh, when I'm done on earth, I'm done. I cease to exist. And so that's the group that's coming to Jesus and having this interaction. Finally, we know that the Sadducees viewed their Bible or their binding scriptures, what we believe and we are bound to follow, was only the books that Moses wrote of the Old Testament. So that would be the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books, the Torah. This would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If Moses wrote it, we follow it. If Daniel wrote it, anybody else, we don't follow it. We don't, we don't believe it's binding. Our Bible is only the first five books the Pentateuch. And so that's who is coming to Jesus to have this interaction with Jesus, and they come up with this ridiculous, cynical, absurd antidote to Jesus to kind of justify their views. They come with this fictitious, hyperbolic idea. Well, Moses said we have to do this thing called levirate marriage, and let's just suppose that we do all that, and let's say it happens seven times. It's a complete fictitious, fictitious hyperbolic thing, if it is absurd over here that this situation happens, then isn't it not absurd that there is anything in the afterlife? That's what they're going for. That's how they're trying to pigeonhole. It's absurd, this idea that, you know, she married, you know she's doing something because they keep on dying. So she's putting something in their, you know, dinner. or so. Somehow this woman keeps on killing off men, you know. And, and now they're all dead. Who's her husband in the afterlife? If this story is ridiculous, then is not the afterlife ridiculous? Is not the idea of a resurrection to an afterlife ridiculous? That is what they're going for. And so I want to read it again with all those things in mind that I just told you. And let's read it again from verse 18. It says this. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, they don't believe it. Their theological stance is there's no afterlife. And there's no resurrection to an afterlife. Came to him and asked him a question. Teacher, they said, Moses, okay, That's their guy, right? That's their author. That's who they follow. Wrote us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. That would be a situation if you were single and you had a brother uh, who died that you would take on his wife and then have a first male-born child to carry his name for him. All right? And now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. And last of all, the woman died also. At the resurrection that we don't believe in anyway. We, we could care less about the resurrection, but well, let's just say that there is a resurrection. That's how cynical and sarcastic they're being. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since, she, since the seven were married to her? And really the idea is, is God really going to promote polygamy in the afterlife? 
Well, that's a great afterlife. So something that we're not allowed to do on earth, we're allowed to do in heaven. And that's kind of the cynical nature of the sarcasm that they're bringing. So let's talk about liberate marriage a little bit in the Old Testament. We don't have it today in our culture. If my brother's wife, my brother dies, you know, um, sorry. That's funny. All right. <laughs> um, but anyway, we don't have it in our culture today, but they did have it in Bible times, Old Testament Bible times. Leverant marriage was this idea that if, my, if I'm single and my brother dies and doesn't give uh, his wife a son to carry on the family name, that I would take on his wife, and the first son would be according to his family's name. Right? Now, the other children would be different. The first son goes so that we keep that line intact, so that the inheritance stays intact, so that the wife is taken care of, because who's going to want to marry somebody in those days? Who's going to want to marry somebody that's already been married and lost a husband? And so it was, it was a way to deal with a, a, a widow. How do we deal with widows? We take care of them is the idea. And so they say, Moses tells us to do this. We'll give you this kind of crazy, absurd situation to prove to you that not only should this not be, but in the afterlife. Life, there is none, there is no resurrection. And so what, what, what's going on here? Uh, Jesus sees right through the agenda. You want me to validate what you think is biblically true. That's what matters to you the most. That is your hidden agenda. And so you give me this ridiculous, uh, really ridiculous, cynical, sarcastic anecdote that, 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 that sh- if it's ridiculous, and then the idea is then must, the afterlife must be ridiculous as well. So what happens when you try to corner Jesus to suit your own agenda? Number one, he will see right through it. He will find your hidden agenda. He's God. And number two, we're going to see now, he will expose its shortcomings. He will expose you in that agenda. What is more important to you right now is your agenda, more important than God. You've made... God subservient to your agenda, I will expose that every time. That's what he does. And we're going to see that in verse 24. Watch this. This is, this is fun. Now you guys know a lot of background, so watch what he does here. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Now, I think if I read that in a, a first century synagogue, okay, like a place of worship in the first century, century everybody would laugh. All right, that's a joke. That's hilarious. Is it not that you're in error because you don't know the scriptures? Who is he talking to? Religious leaders. It'd be like coming up to me after church and go, Haven't you read, have you read the Bible, Pastor? Oh my gosh, I think, I, I mean, I've been reading it for 20 years. I mean, I went to a, 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 three years of a master's degree, four years of you know, a doctor. I've been, there's like 500 books in my office. I read it so clearly every week. I just translate it. I mean, I'm so clearly in this thing. And he says to these religious leaders, the guys who are supposed to lead people to God, isn't the problem really that you don't know the scriptures? I mean, that's what he's saying to them. Not only do you not know the scriptures, but you don't know the power of God. We'll continue. Uh, you're not laughing, but it's funny. All right, 25. When, he ra- when, 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 the dead are, when the dead when the dead rise, what does he do right there? By the way, the dead are going to rise. They are going to raise. He is going to rise. He is going to raise them from the dead. And when that happens, by the way, so right off, I say, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given to marriage. The whole your whole story is dumb because it's not even going to take place. There is no marriage in heaven, is what he says. They will be like the angels, which, by the way, they don't believe in them either. So he throws that in their face. The dead will rise, by the way. There won't be marriage, so your, your illustration, your anecdote, is dumb. And then lastly, they'll be like the angels in heaven, which you don't believe in. Verse 26, now about the dead rising again, because they will rise. 
Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, which I love that because there's no chapter and verse in the Old Testament. We, we put those in centuries later. And so the way they refer to a certain segment of the Bible is they would go, in the account of the bush. Okay, that's Bible geek stuff, but that's really cool. So, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I what? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am. Verse 27, he is not the God of the, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. What happens when you try to corner Jesus to suit your own agenda? I know what to do. We'll give him this ridiculous story. He'll have to answer with us. Oh, no, 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 no. He will expose the shortcomings of your agenda. That's what he does. And he challenges them on two levels. He says, number one, I challenge this idea. You don't know the scriptures or you stopped listening to the scriptures. Somewhere along the way, you, 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 you've decided that your agenda is higher than the very word of God. That this agenda has taken priority over the very word of God. So you don't even know the scriptures anymore. Had you known the scriptures, had you studied the scriptures, you would know that you're off. Not only do you not know the scriptures, you don't understand the power of God. Because you're, 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 you can't, how could God bring us back from death to life? How could he resurrect us? I don't know. He's God. He's, he made the whole earth spin and float. It's right, right now, according to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the one that's keeping it together. He made something from nothing to begin with. Ex nihilo. He spoke it, and boom, there it was. And so I want to try, I could take this table and put it right here, and we can put nothing on that table for 100 years, and after 100 years, guess what? It'll be nothing. We could do that for two million years and it'll still be nothing. This is a God who creates from nothing. If he can create from nothing, I'm pretty sure he can resurrect the dead. But you don't understand that because you don't understand the very power of God. That's what he's saying to them. You don't understand the word of God. You don't understand the power of God. In fact, then he says, I'll prove it to you. Uh, the, the dead will rise. And by the way, there is no marriage in the afterlife. Uh, you don't need to worry. Your story becomes stupid because there's no marriage in the afterlife. Uh, you misunderstood that. And so that doesn't even, that's not even promise you. We'll be like angels who are forever living beings in communion with God. And, and by the way, you don't like angels anyway. You don't think they're around. But the fact of the matter is they will be there. And your own Moses guy tells you about angels in Genesis chapter 19, chapter 28, chapter 32. You're not listening to the word so clearly. You're no longer studying the scriptures. You could care less about the scriptures. That's why you don't know these things and you don't understand the power of God. And really, when he says there is no marriage and there's no giving, he said, you, You've missed the whole point of the afterlife, is what he's saying. You think the afterlife is about being back with your loved ones. And by the way, we do this today to a certain extent. I can't wait to get to heaven so I can see my mom. My husband, my wife, my kid, my dog, Jax, I miss him. As if that's what the afterlife, that God made this afterlife so I could have my family again. Listen, there may be people that we see in heaven that we're happy to see again, but the whole purpose of heaven is to live in a restored communion with God. Like, I hate to disappoint you, but it's all about being close to God. Like when you get to heaven, it's going to be about you connecting with God, number one, number one priority. And that's what he's telling them. You just a story about marriage. You don't even understand. It's not about that. It's about being close to God. 
And this whole idea that, you know, uh, does he have enough power to resurrect? Of course he does. He created this whole world. This whole world. Sometimes we have that kind of question in, in our society today when we talk about cremation. When I die, should I be buried or should I be cremated? And they're going to cremate me and they're going to spread my ashes along the water. So how is God going to resurrect that? I don't know. The God who made something from nothing can figure that out. He's God. Get all my particles, some from off the coast of Japan, some from off the coast of Alaska. Boom, there I am again. He's God. The whole point is the reason you can't see this is because you've limited God and his power. You don't understand the power of God. The best part of this whole thing, though, is in verse 26, when he argues from the Bible to them, now about the dead rising, have you not read from the book of Moses? What did he just do? What did he just do? This is the best part of the whole thing. He said, you know, your Bible, Moses, because I could have referenced Daniel, I could have referenced David in the Psalms, I could have referenced all these other things that talk about the afterlife and showed you that you're wrong, but you don't buy into any of those authors. You only buy into Moses. Okay, let me show you what Moses says. So he takes their very author, their very book that they believe in, and he says, in Exodus, it says, have you not read in the book of Moses, they count by the bush? That's Exodus chapter three and verse six. How God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. The irony in that, that he'd bring this up, is the burning bush interaction between Moses and God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have long been dead. So he could have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac and Jacob. But he doesn't say that. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which, by the way, these were the people of the, the, the covenants that God made with people. This is the covenant-keeping God who says, even though they've long passed and they're long dead, I will keep my covenant and I will continue to be their God because they're still alive. He's going out of his way to say, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. Very strategic for him to point out how Moses was the one who said that. And the idea is if they're still alive in the afterlife, what are they waiting for? Could they be waiting for the day where they will be resurrected? If there's truth in the afterlife, could not God resurrect us and bring us? And then he says to them, you're badly mistaken. You, are, you have deceived yourselves is the idea. You've made a big, bad blunder. You've missed the whole boat. And here's why because they have an agenda and they have God. And they've made God subservient to their agenda. If they would take their agenda and say, I'm gonna make it subservient to God, they'd be fine. And Jesus says, anytime you put your agenda ahead of me, I'm gonna call you out and show you how ridiculous it is. And that's what he does with them. And you know what? We do the same thing. So, so much so that he'd actually say to them, you've even stopped studying the scriptures. Your agenda is so big to you and it means so much to you. It's the most, the highest value you have in life that you've even stopped studying the word of God because your agenda is that powerful in your life. And that's just the thing. I didn't come to meet your agenda. I came to be God. In fact, we, we've reflected that in the big idea of the week. Jesus didn't come to validate your agenda. Jesus came to be your God. Jesus didn't come to validate your own personal agenda, your philosophical agenda, how life should work agenda. What, fill in the blank. Jesus didn't come to validate your agenda. He came to be your God. And so the question that we all have to ask ourselves, and, 
as we process through our lives, why is this religious thing so important to me? Whether it's important to me on a once a week level or a once a month level or twice a year level or, or maybe I don't prioritize him at all but I know he's there. Whatever it is, as you think through religiosity in your life, why is it so important to you? Is it because of a preconceived agenda that you have that God fulfills for you or is it about you subordinating yourself to God? He is God, I'm not and I follow. I subordinate myself to him. Jesus didn't come to validate your agenda. He came to be your God, and that's what he was telling them. I didn't come here to it so you can win a debate and decide who's, I came to be God. And until you can submit to me as God, you'll not be able to see past your own agenda. You know, before I came to Camarillo Community Church a couple years ago, I was an executive pastor in Arizona at a church called Compass Church. And uh, it was kind of a weird deal where I was the executive, so I was doing all the executive activities in charge of all the executive tech activities of the church. But I did a lot of teaching as well, so it was kind of a weird half-breed of a person. And I had this one individual who called me and said, I really would like to meet with you. I'm an insurance guy, and I'd like to sit down with you and show you how you can save money, which every executive loves that, uh, insure your employees. And he was talking about medical insurance, and, you know, I want my employees to have medical insurance. And then the third one was, and this one's kind of sticky, and, you, and I can get you out of having to participate in the immorality that is socialized health care. So I can save you money, I can, I can insure your employees, and then I can also get you out of the immorality that is, uh, you know, participating in socialized health care. I don't know what your views are on socialized healthcare, but I just tell you this, it doesn't matter for this illustration and purposes, right? Just really, you'll, you'll see by the end. And so, okay, so I said, so, uh, listen, uh, I, you know, it's, it's really interesting to me how some people will take things that, that they think are so black and white, you know, moral and moral, they may be wise or unwise kind of things, and they put them in the immoral, moral category. Whatever, I like saving money for the church. I want my people to, be, to, to, to have healthcare. So let's, let's hear the guy out. So I said, come on in. Tell me what it's all about. Of course, it makes a big deal. You know why? I just want to let you know. You guys right now, in the place, you're in this immoral place before God where you're having to comply with this governmental thing of, of, of universal health care type of thing. And so I want to help you get out of that. I'm like, all right, save, save the speech. Just get to the, what is it, what is it about? And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking to myself, you couldn't possibly represent a company that's going to give you a commission based on how many organizations you get to come on board, could you? That's not why you're here right now, right? Maybe just a little bit. Anyway, tell me how it works. And so he's sitting there and he's saying, well, let me, let me tell you. Basically, it's a health sharing plan. And so we get thousands upon thousands, about thousands of people together. And they all give at a, at a lower level than you would have to give if you were part of what the government has for you. And what we do is we pull all the monies together. And whenever you have a medical incident, we just pay for it. So we pull all the monies together. You have an incident. Oh, we'll pay for it for you. And so it works really well if you have a lot of young people on your staff, which we did. We were a young church, and so we had a lot of young, you know, under 30s and whatnot on our staff team. And so you guys don't get very sick, so we like you because there's not a lot of sicknesses, right? And so I, okay, I get it. So we still get medical insurance at a lower clip. We're, we're healthier, so we don't have to, okay, I get it. I see how it works. Uh, but he goes, but I do need to let you know that if one of you did get sick, let's say, say one of you guys got the one in a million kind of a cancer kind of a diagnosis, well, then we would kick you out within a year. I thought, but that's really interesting. That's a really interesting healthcare proposition. So I get sick, and you're not going to pay for it, or you'll pay for it for so many months, and then you kick us out. And well, what do we do after we get kicked out? Oh, well, you go back to universal healthcare because they take you without pre-existing conditions. Wait a second. I thought it was immoral to do that, but now you're going to kick me out and make me do it if I get sick. I'm like, okay, this is kind of interesting. 
And the best part of the whole thing, he goes through his little PowerPoint presentation, and then he enlightens me, enlightens me at the very end to, to say, I, I need to let you know that, um, th- that really this, this plan that we're offering is not in compliance with the government standards, and so therefore every one of your employees will be subject to a $1,200 penalty at the, end, at the end of the year in their taxes. So I'm thinking, wait a second. So it's not even, health, it's not even a, an approved health care option by the government, and so my people are after going to pay $1,200 to, but, but, you know, to, 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 to have this, which you won't cover us if we get sick, but it's a healthcare. Okay, so I'm sitting there going, all right, all right, all right. so I'm, I'm thinking to myself, my wheels are turning and whatnot, I'm trying to, the process goes, but I, but I have good news for you, Pastor Hurtado, there's a way out of those, those penalties. Oh, oh, okay, great, tell me the way out of the penalties. Oh, first of all, if ever you have somebody on your, on your staff team that has a family member who's passed away, then they automatically don't have to pay it. And I'm thinking to myself, you're not, like, advocating that we'd murder somebody. Like, that can't be what you're saying right now, because it's, Im- it's immoral to, to do socialized health care, but it's certainly immoral to kill somebody, right? And so, uh, they go, okay, well, he goes, but that doesn't happen every year. And so, uh, you know, uh, th- th- there's another way to get out. You can prove that you're financially, uh, you have financial difficulty, and then you can get out of it. I said, okay, we'll tell you about that. Well, he, you know, there's many ways to prove you have financial difficulty. One of the ways would be that you just don't pay, you know, the, 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 for two times, one of, your, one of your utility bills doesn't get paid twice a year. So if your water doesn't get paid twice, or your light bill doesn't get paid twice, and, and whatnot. And he goes, you know, and to be honest, you, some people just don't pay it twice, and then they go back and say, look, I have financial difficulty. And I went, wow. So it's immoral to be a part of universal health care, but it's not immoral for me to falsify documentation on my taxes so I don't have to pay the fee. And right away, I started thinking to myself, boy, your moral high ground is being exposed here. All of a sudden, this doesn't look as moral, more moral in this situation. And I thought to myself, are you sure you're not trying to sell us a plan that you'll get a great big commission on? At the end of this, it, and as I thought to myself, what is the true agenda here? Is the agenda morality, following God, or is the agenda money? And these are the type of things that we run into all the time with God, if we're honest. God, I'll follow you if you meet my requirements. God, I will, I, I, if, it, if, it, if it behooves me and it's better for me, then I'll follow you. God, I'll give you myself if you bring my wife back. God, I'll give you myself if you give my kids back. God, let the business flourish and I will work for you and be. And there's this agenda that we have, God, 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 if. And God says, I didn't come to validate your agenda. I came to be your God. In fact, if you get nothing else, understand this, that God is not interested. The biggest thing, the biggest takeaway is God wants to be God, not help you win an argument. Philosophically, politically, whatever it is, God wants to be God. And I want to look at the guy, if God is really, if you're really that concerned about morality on this side, then why don't you care if we lie on our taxes? When you really love God, you say, I'm not going to do any of those things because I love God. and I'm not going to put an agenda before my God. When will you bow to him as God? When will you bow your life to him as God? Not just so you can win an argument, but because he is God. And this is what was going on with the religious leaders. They were so up, so far up this idea of, of, of preserving their agenda that they missed out in the fact that they're standing before the very presence of God. 
God was with them. But we can't see that because we got this agenda. When God becomes subordinate to your agenda, you got major problems. He requires that he be viewed as God. Don't miss the forest in the midst of the trees. It's time to acknowledge him as God. Why? Because he didn't come to validate our agenda. He came to be our God. Let's pray. You know, we just teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Next week we'll be at verse 28. And then I let God take care of the rest. Who's going to be here? Who's in the room? Who needs to hear it? I don't know. That's a God thing. But I venture to say that every one of us struggles with this at some point or another. I could be in the faith for 20 years and still feel like sometimes my agenda has taken more of our priority than God himself. Or I could be a person who has nothing and no desire until today of having any kind of desire for God. And I understand that the reason I don't have a heart for God right now is because he doesn't fit my agenda. The call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to deny yourself and follow him. That means denying your agenda and saying, God, you're my agenda. Everything in my agenda goes sideways. I, I'm not worried anything else, just you. You get to be God, I'm not, I'll follow. And God says, you submit your agenda to me, I'll take care of the sin of your life, place it on Christ, give you his righteousness, and make you a child of God. Is that you? Are you ready for that? Every week we try to make an opportunity. Is that you? Are you ready to say, all agendas aside, God, it's all about you? If that's you, you're in a wonderful place, and I'm excited about what God's gonna do with you in your life, in your family moving forward because of that decisive point where you say, I'm laying down my agenda for you. Father, we love you and you are deserving to be the only thing on our agenda. And so help me as a leader and help our church together